Hi. Hi, everybody. I'm Melissa C. Recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And um, so I'm going to, you know, jump back into the chapter. Last time we um, got, you know, up to about page 48. But I, I want to just recap. Um, so we're studying we agnostics. And, uh, you know, I want to recap what the definition of an agnostic is, because we hear the term used a lot. And I think it's worth us uh, like having a clear definition of what, what it actually is. Um, an agnostic is a person who holds the view that any ultimate reality such as God is unknown and probably unknowable. And, and it's one who is not committed to either believing in the existence or the non-existence of God or a God. And the other definition for an agnostic is a person who's unwilling to commit to an opinion about something. And here it's commit to an opinion about the, the um, existence of God. And so the, the chapter is written for people who think they cannot know for sure the ultimate reality of God and furthermore believes that nobody can. Right. So it's not just believing that that you might not be able to know God's existence, but that there's nobody else that can. And um, and so I think that's something that my position and my understanding is that this chapter was written to help us let go of our agnosticism, not embrace it, because we're also told that, you know, in, in um, in in there's a solution that um, that our solution is that we believe that there is a God, and that this God has is the is the greatest fact. Its existence is the great fact. It says the great fact is just this and nothing less, right? And that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences and that God has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. So to me, um, it, this, is a, this is an invitation to yes, admit our agnosticism, to admit the fact that maybe up until this point, we've believed it's impossible to have a relationship with God because we don't even believe that it could exist and that anyone else could have that relationship, but that we're going to have to learn to let go of that. But this is a chapter written to enable us, right? Because the entire book is about enabling us to find a power by which we could live and that the entire book is written with that as our task. So and that's kind of where I wanted to jump back in, right? Because now on page 48, so I'm getting back to where we were the last time, it says that many of us have been so touchy that even casual reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. And if you bristle, it means you, you're made aggressive and angry or to take an aggressively defensive attitude. Um, and antagonism is to be hostile and in an opposition of a principle, 
So if you're bristling with antagonism, it means you're aggressive, angry, and hostile. And that was our reaction when somebody mentioned spiritual things, right? And I have, I have to tell you, I've definitely been that person. I've definitely been hostile and antagonistic about God. And I came in for me and I was mad when people spoke about God. At first I was, it annoyed me. And I pointed out my position was I came to Overeaters Anonymous um, again, because I had been in many times, but came in again and I had experienced some horrific tragedies. Like, I think like many of us, right? Most of us come about at some point in time, it's the human experience that we have tragedies, right? And I came back to the rooms and I had had loss after loss after loss. And I was um, angry. I was really angry. Um, and when people spoke about God, I pointed out all the tragedies I experienced. And I pointed those tragedies out as the evidence that God either didn't care enough about me to help me or that there was not a God that was capable of helping me, right? So I had two positions about God. One is he was incapable, like unable to do anything for me. And the other one was he could care less about me, right? And neither one was helpful. That was not a helpful position to have. And I see, you know, both those positions did nothing to bring me comfort and they certainly did not help me stop eating. Neither way. Um, and I see a lot of people come in with the same hostile and touchy attitude, you know? Um, and, you know, but here it is, it says faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol was the great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. And so I do think being out of options is beneficial for us. Like, yep, exhausted all options is, is actually good for us. Um, in the last few days, you know, um, when I had originally text, you know, written these notes, I had been learning um, about and studying the different types of drinkers and the moderate, the hard, and the true alcohol, right? And I think about how, for me, I might never have come to find God if I had not been a victim of alcohol destruction. Like that was the incentive, that was the motive for someone like me. Um, and I actually find that um, that has been, pretty much a consistent experience for me. I tend to have had deep and effective spiritual experiences, not on, su not on sunny vacations, but in times of incredible necessity. And I would say like, you know, so how do you go from bristly and antagonistic 
you know, and pointing out all the evidence of the failures of your life, right? The things that didn't go well to someone who's going to actually say, okay, now all those horrible things that happened is a, is an entry way for God to come in. Because that's really what it's got to be. It's either got to be, I'm going to take the hard experiences that have happened as evidence that there is no God, or I'm going to use that as the invitation to allow God in. Right. And so how do we, how do we come to that? Well, one is that I had to stop worshiping intellect, like, like using my rational mind to point out all the other things that went wrong as an intellectual position of the non-existence of God. Like, in fact, what I had to do was say, maybe I just don't know. Like, maybe there is a plan and I don't know why bad things happen to good people. I just don't know. You know, and I love what Ebby had said to Bill, which was basically the same thing. Look, I don't know, he said. But what I do know is that once I took a certain position, remarkable things happened. And so, you know, yes, being faced with alcoholic destruction, with compulsive eating destruction, is helpful, but even more helpful or simultaneously helpful is seeing other people who have said, you know what, I had bad things happen too, but since I took a certain position, I've had a deep and effective spiritual experience and I can't tell you how I know, but I can just show you, if you do this, you'll know too. If you do these things, you'll know too. And so often we have it backwards. You know, we think that we're gonna get God struck, we're gonna get enlightened, and then we're gonna take those steps, right? Like I'm gonna get God struck and then I'm gonna have this spiritual experience and that's gonna propel me to follow steps. And it's the opposite. For many of us, it's the opposite. We come to have a relationship with God in measured increments and in steps along the way, right? And so step two doesn't say you have to know exactly what you believe, but you have to remain open to it. And I'd say being out of options is a great way to be open to it because there's nothing left, right? Um, and so now it says, you know, um, that um, instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever advancing creation, we agnostics and atheists chose to believe that our human intelligence was the last word. And that was pretty much where I had, where I had stood, you know, that my human intelligence was the end all and the be all. Um, and what shifted was that the evidence for me that I gathered to conclude that there was not an effect of God was faulty evidence, right? I looked at the bad things that happened and I said, that's the evidence that there's no God. But I was actually gathering up the wrong evidence, right? The evidence that I was gathering up was that I was a human being, right? And that everybody, it's part of, I don't know why, 
it's part of the human experience though, because our lives are finite and so are the people that we love, right? And so um, I don't understand it, but I know that the, that was my evidence to prove that there wasn't a God. In actuality, that was just evidence to prove that I was human, right? So I believed, you know, that God's job was to live in agreement with my plans. That was my faulty belief that I had plans and that there was a God who was supposed to honor my plans, right? And my plans might've been great, but apparently they weren't God's, you know? And my plans included no loss, no pain, no death, no disappointments. That was my plan. And, you know, but instead, you know, I'm not, God does not work for me. Instead, I'm just an intelligent, capable woman who is meant to be an agent of God, not God's my agent. I'm the agent of God. It means I'm here to do what he directs. And perhaps, you know, all along for me, the real evidence that there was a God was there were always resources consistently placed before me to get me through loss, pain, death, and disappointment, right? That all along, if I look back at all those times that were horrible, somebody showed up, something was made available for me. You know, um, people showed up in my life at some of the most difficult times, right? And that actually is the evidence that I like to look at today of the existence of God, you know? And so my research was faulty, right? I had faulty research and that the data I gave, I gathered was wrong. It was wrong data. You know, page 49 says, we who have traveled this dubious path beg you to lay aside prejudice <laughs> Even against organized religion, we've learned that whatever the human frailties of various faiths may be, those faiths have given purpose and direction to millions. People of faith have a logical idea about what life is all about. And crucial, it's crucial that we lay aside prejudice against organized religions. We should not religion bash but instead look at how religions provide people with purpose and direction. And I often hear sometimes on meetings that I love, people talk when they give their story, you know, they sort of talk about their own struggle with their religion. And I'd say we have to be careful how we do it, that we can talk about our struggle with that religion, but don't bash that religion in the process because that religion might be offering other people all the things that they require, right? All the things. It might be giving them purpose, direction, and, and a good idea about what life is about. So I should, I, I should say we need to be mindful of that. I need to be mindful of that. 
Um, page 50 says, in our personal stories, you will find a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power which is greater than himself. And they flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, to take a certain attitude toward that power and to do certain simple things, there has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking in the face of collapse and despair, in the face of total failure of their human resources, they found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. And to me, this is telling us specifically how we share our stories. This is what a qualification should entail. Tell how we first approached God, how we took step two, came to believe, how we took step three, took a certain attitude toward God, meaning we took the attitude of surrender and serve. That's the attitude we take towards God, to surrender towards to God and to serve God. And how we did other simple things, which is steps four through 10. And how we had a revolutionary change in living and thinking. So we share how our thinking has changed and how our lives have changed. And we describe our personality change and the effect it has had on others. We describe how in the face of collapse and despair and failure, we found God. God met us in our mess. God met me in my mess and his power flowed in and gave me peace and happiness and direction. And we give credit to our creator. We make God the hero of our story. That's what it's really telling us here. And so if you think about this revolutionary change, it means that the old ruler, remember I said like my belief was that it was my job to tell God my plan and his job to honor it, right? And a revolutionary change means there's a revolution and I'm no longer in charge, right? I have been, nope, I am just a subject. I am not the king, right? I'm not the one in charge anymore. Um, that's the revolution. And what happens when you change your thinking for myself, what happened is then when I make decisions and choices and I look at situations rather than say, what would be aligned with my plan? What's my plan? What's gonna benefit me? I ask, how would God have me be? And, and, and if I'm unsure, my go-to is which will benefit more people? which will be helpful to more people, which will, be, which will make more people happy, right? Not what's just gonna make me happy. Is it easy to do that? No, right? No, we're all human, but that should be my focus, right? And that when I do that, what happens is I get power. It flows in me. It's not my power. Power flows in and I get peace 
and I get happiness and I feel directed. I feel a sense of direction. Page 51 says, they show how the change came over them. When many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God today is the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith. So if you remember, I opened up tonight reminding us about how agnosticism is something that we're encouraged to let go of. And here's why. If I wanna transmit anything to you, it's only transmittable if I've received it. What am I gonna give to you? What possibly could I give to you, right? And what have I received? God's power, because it's not my power. It's no human. Remember we're told no human power. So when a guide is working with you, what they're, what they're hoping to transmit to allow to flow from a higher source through them out to you is the power of God, right? Is the presence and the power of God. And so what have I received, right? I've received God's power. I've received, the, you know, the power of God flows through me. We who have recovered have the consciousness of the presence of God. So if you're conscious to the presence of God, it means we know that there's a God. We're conscious to it. We're awake to it. We're sure of it because we've been awoken up to God's presence. Now that does not mean I have the inside skinny, the inside scoop on all of what God wants. No, right? It means though that I am certain of the existence. I can feel it inside. I just, I just know, right? And, you know, so I know that God's presence is real. And agnostics feel that nobody can have certainty. That's what it says, that's the definition. And yet this says the exact opposite. Not only does it say the exact opposite, but it actually says that it's the most important fact of my life. It's a more important fact to me of the presence of God than of what foods I can and cannot eat, right? This is the most important fact. Every other thing I know and do rests on this fact. Because on my own, I start gathering evidence of something that is not factual, right? In page 52, it says, is not our age characterized by the ease with which we discard old ideas for new, by the complete readiness with which we throw away the theory or gadget which does not work for something new which does. And so how many old ideas, right? Gadgets and theories have I willingly picked up and replaced as soon as there seems to be something more helpful. In fact, I never even demand that I comprehend their power and I don't even look at their effectiveness, right? And yet the God idea was a struggle. And 
So think about like all the gadgets, right? When, when you get an update on your phone, right? And, and I, I'm just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm not even sure that it's going to make anything better or easier for me, but I just kind of go with it, right? I just, I don't know. I just go with it. Apple says it's a good update. I'll update it, right? And, and yet somehow the God idea is a struggle, right? Like, I don't know about that thing. And, and so here, like, can we keep an open mind? Can we at least keep an open mind? Now we're going to talk about the bedevilments. Here's the bedevilments. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear and we were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels, right? And of course it was of evidence, right? So the bedevilments for me, I'd say are the consequences of my management. When I'm managing, what I get in return is living in the bedevilments. Um, and it's my evidence that I need a new idea or theory. My bedevilments is the evidence to tell me it's time to update, time to update. Um, you know, when others discuss the way that they experience these consequences and that they're no longer experiencing them and they give God credit, that's the evidence. That's the evidence that I need to discard my old ideas. And for me, what were my old ideas? I had a lot of old ideas about diets, about food, about how I was gonna manage this and about just about everything. I had ideas about just about everything. And so what we're you know, invited to do is to discard them and embrace new ones, have a new attitude. And when we saw others solve their problems by simple reliance upon this spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting in the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. Page 53 says, when we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he's nothing. God either is or he isn't. What is our choice to be? And so, you know, this for me, when, when it's either God is everything or God is nothing, you know, it's, I ask myself that question in, in all matters, especially the tough ones. And is God everything or is he nothing? And, you know, and so I think what they really mean by that is, are you going to allow God to be everything for you? Or are you going to push him to be nothing, right? Um, and that's our choice. And what, you know, what is our choice to be? Well, you know, we looked back in, 
there's a solution again. It's like it said that we have two choices. One is to go on eating, blotting out, right? The consciousness, the awakeness of our intolerable situation. Like one, I either, my choice is eat myself into a coma so that I'm not even alive. So I'm just sort of walking around like I'm dead. Um, and the other one is to accept spiritual help. Those are my two choices. I don't have a middle. There is no other choice. Um, and we really do. We're told to make a choice. We have to, at this point, make a choice. What do you want? You want the disease or you want God, right? On page 55, it says, actually, we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And so the fundamental, what is fundamental? The central importance. If something is fundamental, it's centrally important. It's the essential structure. It's the function and it's the facts. And so inside each one of us, it, in there is this central importance. We crave God, we do. We've got this spot in us. And those of us, myself included, that once I really accepted and embraced God, I felt that hunger, that internal, that hole. It got quiet, it got quenched. Because inside me, there was a hungering. Inside me, there was a longing for God. It was inside me all along. And it might be obscured. So along the way, it gets covered up. We can't see it by calamity. Yeah, I shared that with you. I had bad things happen by pomp and by worship of other things. So it might be hidden by disastrous events. And, you know, my own experience, that was my experience. Or by great, big, shiny, man-made things, right? That pomp that we attribute to being the rewards of our power, right? So pomp is like, look at all the great things that I've done. Look at all the great things I've got, right? Um, or worshiping other things. And basically, what are the other things I worship? My human desires, the things that I want, I begin to worship them. In some form of other, it is there. This God idea is there. But really, it, it is absolutely there. And some, um, for faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man themselves. We open our minds and our eyes and we see the demonstration of things that are beyond all human power. Like if we just start looking. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we had for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within. And I, you know, I love one of the things that Janet points out that I think is really just a beautiful thing that I love to think about is that 
God gave us eyes, a nose, and ears, a mouth, arms, legs, and a fundamental idea of himself right there in front of us. He gave me the idea of him. It was right there. And it says here, if our testimony helps sweep away prejudices, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, then if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. And with this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. So the testimony is our shares and our examples should help you do three things. A testimony, when someone shares their story, it should help you do three things. One, sweep away prejudice. My story should help you get rid of your prejudice thinking. That should be like my mission, right? I wanna help get rid of prejudice. Two, enable you to think honestly. So we help people get honest, right? And we help people, I say, get honest and real. Yes, by offering them acceptance. It's important that people feel accepted. That helps people become more honest because then they don't have to fear consequences of their honesty from a human reaction, right? Three, encourage you to search diligently within yourselves. So we encourage people. We're supposed to encourage people to seek God through prayer, through meditation, and through our own demonstration. And if you do those three things with an attitude of open-mindedness, meaning that you're hungry for God, you cannot fail. Like, I just think that's incredible. We're actually guaranteed. When people say, do you, are you sure that this will work for me? Well, if you do these things, you can't fail, right? The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. And to me, this is a promise. Step two is a promise that we will become aware of God. It will come to you. It might not be at step two. You don't get step two. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now I'm at step two. Now I've got it. But we're promised you will. You will come to have that experience. And it's a reassurance that you're going to come to know God. Page 56 says, we will experience what the minister's son experienced. Here's what he experienced. Overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide of flood. The barriers he had built through the years were swept away. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He had stepped from bridge to shore. And for the first time he stood in the consciousness, conscious companionship with his creator. And so in that paragraph is one of my favorite terms for God. And it says, infinite power and love. That earlier on in the chapter, when it said that, you know, how can you start 
you know, understanding or start figuring out or start having an experience, they say, consider all the spiritual terms and what they mean to you. And this is a spiritual term. And for me, I love the meaning of that. Infinite power and infinite love. But think about that. We get to stand in an awake and aware friendship with something that has infinite power, like never ending power source, stronger than the food, stronger than the candy. And not only is it powerful, but as powerful as it is, it loves me just that much, right? Infinitely loving. And I have two choices. Either I wanna believe in that God, or I wanna believe in the God that somehow ignored me when life was sad and hard. And that's, and that we're kind of told, what's your choice to be? And I'll tell you, since I took the position of a God, believing in a God that's infinitely loving and infinitely powerful, I get to live in the presence of that. That's the presence I want to live in. You know, that there is a God and I want to have a relationship with that God. And that's what we're promised. That's what this chapter really promises us. So I'm going to end a little bit early because rather than just take questions, and we'll stop the recording.